So basically, Dave, yourself and Jim LeClaire went to the Generals in 1984 after spending all those years with the Cincinnati Bengals. Why was why'd you do the move? Uh, guaranteed contract, you know, and guaranteed by Donald Trump, uh, personal services contract, pretty much guaranteed by him, which I felt was uh, was about as 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 good a guarantee as there could be. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, it was guaranteed uh, for injury skill, the whole nine yards, and it was co- kind of almost like a a ten year uh, annuity coming due. Is the way I looked at it. And then yourself, uh, Jim LeClaire, and then, of course, uh, Bobby Leopold and one other player was from that 1981 Super Bowl with the 49ers. So there were four former uh, Super Bowl players on that 1984 New Jersey Generals team. Right, right. And uh, uh, three of them were on defense. And, uh, yeah, you're right. And then, of course, Brian Seip, you know, a quarterback uh, from uh, from the same division that uh, that Jimmy and I had played in and real familiar with, with, with what Brian you know, brought to the table and everything, but yeah, it was it was pretty interesting. Um, the teams that I guess the the Donald Trump or the USFL or both felt like they could, uh, you know, they could try to secure players from. Talk about uh, what you thought the uh, the talent was like on that team when you went there. Talk about the talent level you thought when you got to the Generals. I thought it was pretty good. I mean, I I thought that in general the talent in the in the league was good. It, the only the biggest difference in my mind was the. Uh, Sometimes the depth wasn't as, as big or as uh, as strong. I mean, in the NFL, you can go two or three deep because it was so established. And there were so many players, such a big talent pool to pick from. And the USFL, being a, a newer league, didn't have you know the depth that the NFL had. But um, the the players, I mean, the frontline players they had were, were very good. And if you if you go look at Pro Bowl uh, teams that were NFL Pro Bowlers. A matter of a year or two after the USFL folded, there were USFL players all over those Pro Bowl teams. Well, it, it's funny you said that because I recently interviewed Bart Oates, and we and we looked at his Philadelphia Stars, and and he felt by 1985 the Stars could certainly, well, he thought they could beat the Philadelphia Eagles. And you look at that team; you had Bart Oates, Irv Eatman, Sam Mills. Uh, I'm trying to think if I'm missing anybody else on on that team. Uh, Sean Landetta, another name. And you look at all those names there, and they had a, about a, a 20 combined Pro Bowls in their NFL careers. So certainly you look at the talent level that went from the USFL to the NFL, it was certainly there. Yeah, I mean, you look at Herschel Walker, Maurice Carthon, Jim Kelly, uh, Reggie White, I mean, uh, Keith Millard. Uh, it goes on and on and on. I mean, there, there, were, there were great players at every seemingly every position group that uh, that got an opportunity to to play in the USFL and when the league uh, you know when the league dissolved folded whatever they certainly made their statement in the NFL and and that's really the, the, the thesis of the book it's going to be the impact the USFL players had on the NFL after its demise and and, and not just for a cup of coffee you're talking Jim Kelly uh, Steve Younger in the Hall of Fame, Reggie White's going to be in the Hall of Fame, but players like Anthony Carter had great careers in Minnesota, Herschel Walker. I mean, his trade with the Cowboys really built the Cowboy team that went to, to all those Super Bowls. Talk about Herschel Walker and playing with him when you got there in 1984. Uh, Herschel Walker was, I mean, probably the rarest combination of size and speed I've ever seen in my life. His size-speed ratio was off the charts. I mean, he had world-class speed, literally, 
on a 220, 225-pound body. And um, just a genetic phenomenon, a freak of nature. There's no question about it, no other way to put it. Um, definitely a smoke-the-hole guy. If, if he hit a crease and, uh, you know, wasn't wasn't rerouted and had to worry about contact balance and everything, it was just a, uh, a, a, just a unique thing, experience to see him run and people take uh, angles to try to intersect him and come up five yards short because of that speed. He was, uh, he was incredible. I mean, the power that he would generate with that size-speed ratio was, was astounding. And were you surprised he didn't have better? Well, actually, he had good numbers when he was with Dallas, but he wasn't as dominant like he had 2,500 yards in 1985 with you guys. Are you surprised he didn't become that dominant runner, at least making a, a rush at, at 2,000 yards at some point? Because he did so many different things, receiving, catching, and returning kickoffs, though. Yeah, I think, I think his, you look at his all-purpose numbers, and I, I know he was in the top ten. I'm not sure if he still is, but I think he was in the top ten in NFL history for all-purpose yards when you consider his return yards, his receiving yards, his rushing yards. And that's where, you know, he showed his versatility. I think the, the biggest thing probably that Herschel lacked was the, the natural, you know, he was not a great change of direction, cutback guy. You know, he, he, he wasn't, he couldn't do it at full speed like a Barry Sanders. I mean, he was a different style of runner. Than uh, than Barry Sanders was, uh, Herschel wasn't as fluid a cutback kind of guy, you know. In 1985, a, a guy by the name of Doug Flutie joins the New Jersey Generals. Talk about Doug Flutie. Uh, a rare, rare commodity. <laughs> the uh, probably everybody's uh, everybody's favorite because an undersized guy that achieved at such a high level, and I think you know he basically was the ultimate underdog just proved everybody wrong at every level of uh, not only football, but every level of sports that he played. And I think the thing that impressed me most about Doug Flutie was his football IQ. You know, he had it. And it is hard to define. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's the abstract. It's the ability to make plays, to see things, to anticipate things before they actually occur. He had all of that. And couple that with his ability to make people miss and uh, his athleticism, and um, you know, you, you had something very rare there, and, and a tremendous amount of confidence. I mean, he just felt like, uh, you know, he could will a football team to win. He had a, a very, very, very big competitive streak, and uh, he just refused to lose. As my memory, I'm trying to re- recollect in my memory now, he was injured for the last few games of the 1985 season, and you didn't have him for that playoff game against the Stars. That's correct, right? Right. He broke his collarbone. I think it might have been Reggie White, in fact, that sacked him and fell on top of him and uh, fractured his collarbone. He kind of looked like Quasimodo a little bit and uh, wasn't un- was, was unable to finish that season. When he went to the Bears, do you think he didn't get a fair shot when he went to the NFL? Because he went on to the CFL after the, he went to the Bears, then the Patriots, then he had some, a great career in the CFL. Do you think he got a fair shot in the NFL when he came? Well, I mean, I think, I think that he, he, he'll probably say that, that, uh, that obviously he didn't. But, I mean, he made, he made multiple stops. Um, and I think, I think the one thing that, that uh, probably hurt him most in, in the NFL as opposed to the other leagues, was his lack of size and his ability to see, you know, over people. Because the NFL, it's at the highest level, and things open and close so quickly. And maybe, maybe things that he thought he saw in the NFL, he didn't really see because, uh, you know, he would get obstructed and, and things would close up more quickly. And 
I think the bigger field in, the, in Canada played to his advantage. You know, the longer, wider field, I think, played to his advantage, and they weren't. I mean, they were obviously good athletes playing at a professional level, but it wasn't NFL caliber athletes. And um, But when Doug Flutie, it, it seemed like whenever he got his opportunity uh, to, to, to step up and play, he never really disappointed, you know. I mean, he never really did. But I think I think probably the the thing that, that continued to hurt him, even when he proved he could play in the NFL, was people just didn't think you could win consistently enough for enough years with a guy his size at the quarterback position. Despite that, he did have a winning record in the NFL. But like, yeah, he, he yeah. I mean, the, the, the guy is he is a, he's a phenom, uh, and he just you know he his his instincts. I mean, you could look at his face. He would go into like a zone, and when he got this look on his face, you knew something special was going to happen. He would just kind of like zone out, and I don't know what he would do from a focus standpoint, or I don't know if he was a Zen Buddhist or what the heck he was. But man, he would uh, he would just. <laughs> You, you knew some, some something uh, unique was going to take place. I remember a game, I, I guess it was against the LA Express, when it, it looked like he did a couple of 360s in the backfield and he found one of the receivers, I don't know if it was Sam Bowers or not, in the end zone, but it was it was just a bizarre play and it really showed his athleticism and, and how he could buy time. Yeah, that that's the thing is what he could do is uh, he could create opportunities. He could create it with his feet. And he could, you know, and, and run the football, or he could create passing opportunities with his feet as well. As and he he was always looking for the defense to break down. You know, he would always, when he was on the perimeter. And I, I think I think if you probably went back and charted uh, Doug, his I, I bet in the pocket and out of pocket, his percentages would have been a lot higher out of pocket when he was on the perimeter, pressuring an outside linebacker or pressuring a cornerback and putting them in a two-way bind. They're between the rock and the hard place. Do I come up and tackle him before he crosses the line of scrimmage? Do I plaster my guy, let him get across the line of scrimmage, and then I'm in trouble? And that's when Doug Flutie really caused problems for people when he had that two-way go going against you. And talk about the Generals. They were one of the more popular teams in the USFL. I remember a game, I think it was 85, against the Jacksonville Bulls. They drew 72,000 people on the road at home, well over 40,000 people. The generals certainly had the fan support. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think they did. I think, you know, obviously the marketplace has something to do with that. You have so many people, and they, they can't, uh, you know, not everybody can get Giants and Jets season tickets, and the overflow um, of people that, that couldn't were, were definitely uh, New Jersey general, you know, season ticket holders. There's no question about it. And uh, I, think, I think that's issue. Uh, that was a factor in the favor is the marketplace. And I think the fact that Donald Trump, you know, was a flamboyant guy and a, a great marketer and, you know, collected Heisman Trophy guys and <laughs> uh, knew how to market that. And and that's why I think, you know, down south, like when we did play Jacksonville and Birmingham and people like that, it was, you know, let's knock off the rich guy from New York and the <laughs> troops rallied behind that. I mean, uh, you know, Trump has obviously proven to be as good a, 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 a marketing person for himself or any business that he's involved with as there is in the history of business. And I think that uh, that was the case with the generals as well. And I interviewed Charlie Steiner re- recently, and he pointed out that the USFL and the generals were really Trump's foray into the public st- uh, spectrum, as you do, because I remember him showing up in the limousines to the games with a beautiful woman as, at his side. Do you remember that? Oh, absolutely, and I remember him flying down to Jacksonville in a helicopter, and it was like the president was arriving. You know, he flew down in a chopper, and, 
and uh, lands by the stadium and, you know, works his way over to the stadium. It's like a grand arrival, and he's got Ivana by his side, and she's stronger than New Rope and, you know, uh, an Olympic-caliber athlete herself. And uh, just, it was yeah, it was, it was a dynamic, uh, dynamic thing to witness. There's no question about it. And I think, you know, with the Trump Tower and the generals and his casinos, it was all around the same time. And he's a smart guy because whenever whenever he was mentioned in the any form of media, print or electronic, it was Donald Trump, owner of New Jersey Generals, comma Trump Tower, comma you know uh, Trump Casino, comma. And how can you uh, how can you you can't buy that advertising and publicity and promotion? I mean, the generals owning the generals, you know, was almost like his toy, but he used it to market everything else that he was about as well. And I think he understood that. You know, I think he was acutely aware of all the. Every time he had an opportunity to get himself in the in the media, the exposure for all of his ventures, not just the general's venture, was an opportunity that uh, he had to capitalize on. And 1986, there's a merger with the Houston Gamblers, and on the cover of Sports Illustrated is Jim Kelly. Uh, on it, it says, watch out, Fouts Marino. And that, to me, kind of symbolizes the USFL. Here it was. It had success. Nine million fans passed through the gates. The ratings were good. The first year was over a sixth. Uh, by the last year, 1985, it was still holding above a four, which by today's standards is outstanding. But so much hope, and it kind of just just disappeared in 1986. Do you agree with that kind of assessment, that there was so much hope, there was still so much more to accomplish with the league? Yeah, I think I think there were, you know, I think Donald uh, obviously was one of the owners that the ultimate goal was to be part of the National Football League. And I, I think... Honestly, when he got ownership in the USFL, he was thinking long-term, um, not the immediate future, not you know, like a one-year, or but probably a three-year, five-year plan in his mind was to was to be uh, merged into the National Football League, just like the old AFL, you know, merged with the NFL. I think some of these owners felt like the USFL would be swallowed up and merged into the National Football League, and you know, when they decide to go head-to-head in the fall with the, with the Giant, you're going to get squashed, and um, I think, though, obviously they, they, they felt like they had a strong legal case, and they won the case, but they only got awarded a dollar. So <laughs> that was they, it was tripled both with Sherman Antitrust laws, and right. they took their three bucks and went away. But, I, I mean, it's obvious that the NFL, they ruled it a monopoly, but uh, they weren't about to bust up the National Football League, that's for sure. Well, Howard Cosell at the trial he called it a duly adjudicated monopoly, and he testified against the USFL. And here's a guy with ABC, and apparently at the time the NFL was strong-arming the networks that if, if this league goes to a fall, you're going to lose your football. But do you think, as you've been now, in, in all your years of football, and you've seen other leagues come and go, and from my estimation, the USFL certainly had the best chance of surviving of any football league in the spring because they had the TV contracts. And from what I've researched from the court case, that there were contracts in place for, for ABC for $100 million for four years and $70 million from ESPN as well. So certainly, in my estimation, and you tell me if you agree or not, that the USFL had the best chance of surviving if it would have cut some teams like San Antonio and stayed in the spring league. Yeah, no question. If they had stayed in the spring with the TV contracts in place and the revenue streams, you know, you can project where you are. Um, in the spring, Birmingham, Jacksonville, huge, huge opportunities. You know, in, if you go in the fall, you're competing not only with the NFL, you're pe- competing with college football. And you, right. you're not going to you're not going to beat the SEC. It's just not going to happen. I mean, SEC football is religion. 
But in the fall, you're not you're not competing with the SEC. You're not competing with the National Football League, and and then in the other bigger markets like the New Jerseys and the Chicago's and Philadelphia's and, and, and markets like that that had baseball, obviously, but there were still football fans that couldn't get season tickets to the NFL teams like we were talking about, and you know there was going to be enough support. And yeah, I think if the USFL had stayed in the spring and not tried to take on the big dog and go head to head in the fall, it definitely would have survived. Do you blame and it your... would have created a lot, of, a lot more jobs for players and coaches and equipment guys and trainers and you name it. And, and you bring that up, it created a raised salary. Salary is almost doubled by 19, uh, 1983. I interviewed Tom Thayer last week, and he actually talked about going from college, playing with the Chicago Blitz and the Wranglers. And in college back then, you didn't know how to pass block, really. So the three years in the USFL let him walk right into a Bears training camp, and by midseason, he started for the 85 Bears. So it really gave a lot of young players a chance to tone their skills and, and some older players a chance to make some more money before their, their careers came to an end. Absolutely. I mean, it, 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 it created a, a venue and an opportunity for, for all of the above that you just described. And, and, uh, and maybe, maybe players that um, didn't make it initially in the NFL had been the last cuts in the National Football League. It's just a numbers game. These guys are damn good football players, but for whatever reason, you know, got, got lost in the numbers game. Now those guys have to go to NFL Europe to try to jumpstart their careers and resurrect it. The USFL provided that for some guys. You know, they, uh, There was a, a pool of guys that didn't make it the first go-around in the NFL but went to the USFL and and uh, you know, showed that hey, when the light comes on, I'm a player, and uh, you know, and, and had had big careers as a result of that. I mean, a guy that played with the Generals, Brian Millard, was not a was not uh, a high draft choice to the NFL. He went to the New Jersey Generals, pro- proved that he could play. Played against Reggie White, playing right tackle against Reggie White with the Memphis Showboats, and goes in the NFL. Has a long career with the Seattle Seahawks. I mean, there are a bunch of cases like that where where guys that the NFL wasn't sure about. When they went to the USFL and got a stage to perform on, perform well enough with the NFL, said, "Son of a gun, I, I missed on this guy. He can play." And they had an opportunity to have a long career. And, and one of those guys, of course, was Sam Mills, a linebacker who went, I believe, to eight Pro Bowls uh, as a member of of the Saints. No question. And I'm trying to think of the outside linebacker. It's terrible. I can't Vaughn think of his jo- name. Vaughn Johnson. Pardon me. Vaughn Johnson. Vaughn Johnson. Yeah. Hell of a player as well. I mean, Sam Mills and Vaughn Johnson both. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they get an opportunity to show. And Sam Mills, you know, it's funny. Again, he was like the Flutie syndrome. You know, he was 5'9", but, heck, he was 235, 240 pounds. He's 6'2". You got yourself a stud horse now, and he had a size 14 shoe but on a 5'9 body. You couldn't knock him off his feet. I mean, he had a he had a base on him that was unbelievable, and you couldn't get under his shoulder pads. You had to come off the line of scrimmage on your kneecaps to try to get under his shoulder pads, and he proved that. You know, hey, I'm playing with leverage. You can't get your pads lower than me. And football's all a game of leverage. It's physics. And and uh, he could, he proved Sam Mills proved that he could separate from blocks. He could see and make plays and had a hell of a career. And, and I interviewed uh, Jim Moore a couple of weeks ago. Actually, it was about a month ago. And I said, at at one any point, did you doubt bringing Sam Mills in, into you know the Saints training camp? And he goes, and Jim said, you know, I saw Sam out there and he just looked so damn short next to the other players. And on the first play, they ran a play at him, and he stuffed him. And then he stuffed him the next play. And he knew from right there that Sam, you know, was here to stay, and he could handle anything the NFL could throw at him. So it'll lose. Yeah, Sam, Sam, all Sam was was short. 
believe me, Sam was all man. Now, was he was he vertically challenged? Yeah, but he was all man. I mean, <laughs> that that's the only the only aspect of Sam Mills that wasn't all football player, and he proved that that was not a shortcoming. And talk about Reggie White. Of course, you faced him in the USFL, and you know, I, I'm gonna try and get a hold of his wife to interview her. But talk about going against Reggie White. Well, he was just so um, another freak of nature in terms of a guy that big being able to run like he ran. And, I mean, he just overpowered people because of, you know, it's just, you just don't, you don't see a guy that size being able to do, have the skills that he had in terms of quickness and, and speed. I mean, he could, he could run like running backs, and he could run quarterbacks down from anywhere. And um, his technique was not real refined. And, and he once he went to the Philadelphia Eagles and they taught him some some moves and he and he had that little you know his, the little hump move that he ended up being famous for and and he started to fine tune all of those type of techniques and mechanics in the National Football League um, he became a super superstar but he he showed himself to be physically better than almost anybody in the league and and uh, Buddy Ryan said you know boy give me that clay to work with teach him a few things, and I'll mold him into the epitome of a defensive, and that's exactly what he became. And a former teammate of yours with the Bengals, who, of course, had trouble cracking the starting lineup because he had a quarterback by the name of Kenny Anderson. Uh, John Reeves went to Tampa Bay, and Tampa Bay was a very popular team, and they lit up points with a with a back named Gary, Gary Anderson. Talk about John a little bit that you remember. Yeah, I'm a Gary Anderson from Arkansas. I remember him very well, a big play guy, you know, had, had tremendous vision and slash away at you, and and uh, I was a team played with John Reeves with the Bengals before he got traded to the Philadelphia Eagles, and and he and uh, he and Steve Spurrier were a match made in heaven. A couple of Florida Gators that that believed in you know slinging it and spreading the field and getting mismatches down the football field and throwing the heck out of it. And John Reeves threw the ball as well as anybody did. And uh, and he and Steve Spurrier just uh, that they clicked. I mean, it was. It was like Steve Spurrier was living vicariously through John Reeves executing the offense, and and they were of one mindset, that's for sure. And uh, John Reeves uh, had himself in a brilliant career. And uh, the thought, and I'm pulling some quotes from 1986. A lot of the, some of the general managers really didn't think much of the USFL players. Um, some teams like the Saints, Vikings, Redskins. Giants, they took a lot of USFL players, and it certainly served them well with Bart Oates, uh, Godfrey, Maurice Carthon with the Giants. But Mike Brown wasn't that crazy about the USFL players. Do you, what was your thought on as far as some of the reception that the USFL players got when they went to the NFL? Uh, I think that, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I think the USFL went after a lot of Mike's players because they felt like he wouldn't compete to keep them, which was true. You know, and Danny Ross, Jimmy LeClaire, Tom Dinkle, um, you know, myself, a lot of guys ended up ended up leaving. And, um, you know, I, I think that Mike, you know, just looked at the USFL uh, potentially as a threat. I think I think he saw uh, what he saw what was going to happen before it happened. And I, I don't think he liked, you know, that type of threat. But it's very interesting because that's how his dad got into the NFL. He was in the old AAFL. You know, and, and with Marion Motley and all those guys, and they get absorbed by the National Football League, and Cleveland became a new franchise, a new entity in the NFL, and mm-hmm. ended up shocking the Philadelphia Eagles in the in the world and winning an NFL championship. So Paul Brown, Paul and Mike, you know, kind of despised the USFL, but it was kind of a uh, 
kind of an interesting irony because that's pretty much how Paul got into the NFL. Uh, that's bizarre. I didn't. I wasn't aware of that because the, the quote I was reading about Mike Brown, he, he basically said he didn't expect much of USFL players. And, of course, the Bengals really struggled. They went to the Super Bowl in 1988. But they really struggled uh, for quite a few years after uh, after the uh, the demise of the USFL. And it seems like the Redskins and the, and the Giants, like I mentioned, the Saints did did very well with with the acquisition of all these players. And then in one one stance, the Buffalo Bills, their whole franchise was built from the USFL. You had Marv Levy from the Blitz, Jim Kelly with the Gamblers. You had Brent, uh, your center there, uh, Brett Hull, and then uh, Bill Polian and John Butler were all USFL uh, alumni. Exactly. I mean, the, the the guys that the guys that went to the you know Jim Mora and all those uh, all the uh, you know Marv Levy, all the people that had a, a hands-on exposure to the USFL, uh, they 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 understood and they they knew what the talent pool was like. And uh, I'm not sure that 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 Mike um, paid that much attention to it. You know, I mean, Mike's not a big proponent of uh, NFL Europe as like Kansas City and some other teams are. Um, you know, I think that he he thinks more in terms of um, you know um, tunnel vision. You know, in terms of of uh, the National Football League, and um, but I think I think part of the struggles with the Bengals it coincided with the death of Paul. You know, Paul died in in, in 1990. You know, that was the last year the Bengals made the made the playoffs. And right, right, right. I think that's part of the biggest uh, the biggest part of the, the struggle there. Do you remember feeling some resentment from the NFL? Did you try and go back to the NFL after the USFL? No, I did, did not. You did not. Okay. Do you remember when you went jumped to the uh, USFL? What you, what what did Brown say, and and what did other people say when when you went there? Um, you know, it was I basically looked at it uh, as as a business decision. And I, if I looked in the mirror and didn't take this opportunity, I wasn't doing right by my family, and I think they pretty much. Uh, I'm not. I think they may have understood it. That they necessarily, you know, agree or like it. Uh, maybe not as much. But I was a 10-year player, and as a 10-year player uh, with the Cincinnati Bengals at that time frame, you know, you're you're pretty much year to year. I was year to year myself. So it wasn't, uh, you know, Jimmy Leclair. I think Jimmy Leclair myself, and um, I was more surprised that. Danny Ross, who you know had not didn't have as many years on his tire tread as, as Jimmy Duclair and myself did, I was surprised that he played that with he the Breakers, right? Yeah, he went to the Breakers, right? Yeah, he went to the New England Breakers. And and then, didn't Chris Collinsworth sign a contract with Tampa Bay, but he failed the physical, as I remember? Um, it, 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 the, yeah, I'm not sure about the physical part, but he did sign a contract, but it never it never uh, it never materialized. Ultimately, you know, Mike got him re-signed. Oh, he did. Okay, because I, I remember something about that. I, I just remember there was such a yeah. Uh, Chris was going to jump, and and Mike that that was one that would have been a public relations nightmare that he couldn't afford to have happen, and um, it never got to that stage. And a, a quick question about the '81 Super Bowl, because uh, I'd like to just incorporate the section I'm writing about you. Would you know a lot of pe- people reflect back on and this is one that the, certainly the Bengals actually the Bengals could have won both Super Bowls. You agree with that? Yeah, I do. I think that uh, I think that both were winnable. I think the '81 Super Bowl that I played in um, turnovers decided the football game. We turned it over four times, and you can't do that and expect to beat a team the caliber of the San Francisco 49ers. We're fortunate that we were within five points of them, you know, with turning over as much as we did. And uh, that, and we had a turnover and a goal line stand. Uh, they stopped us on downs, which was equivalent to like a fifth turnover. 
Right. And when you don't take advantage of opportunities like we had in the red zone when we didn't score, and if you give them extra possessions with turnovers like we gave them, um, you know, it hasn't changed since day one of football. You do those kind of things, you're putting yourself in peril. And that's what we did. It was the first uh, first Super Bowl ever. The losing team outgained the winning team in terms of yards, but because of all the things I just talked about, not uh, finishing drives and turning the football over and giving extra possessions to uh, the Joe Montana-led 49ers, we lost the football game. You guys ran it four straight times at, at the goal line, as I recall, right? Uh, there was a pass. Yeah. Charlie Alexander caught the ball at the one-foot line, and Dan Buns crushed him and um, didn't get into the end zone, but... That play was designed, if Charlie catches the football, it's supposed to be a touchdown, but he cut his pattern short. And, um, you know, Buns made a great play, so there was a mistake on our end and a great play on their end, and that uh, that was the third down play. Ran it on first and second down, threw it on third down, ran it on fourth. 